There is, um, there are two characters in the Bible that I want to talk to us about this morning. And I could go on for hours and hours and hours, and obviously we don't have time to do that. But I do want to highlight some things about these two people. And you normally don't think about these two people in the same conversation. Because one is from the Old Testament, one is from the New Testament. The first person we're going to look at this morning is the Apostle Paul. And I want you to turn with me to the book of Acts. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. And it's going to be Acts chapter um, 22. Now, again, we do not have time this morning to go through and read chapters 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, and 28. But we're going to look at the story here of 22 through 28. For those of you who are unfamiliar, Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin. Uh, he, was, he was being trained to become a member of the Sanhedrin. He studied under the greatest teacher that Israel had ever known up to that point. And, and he was being groomed to be one of the leaders in the nation of Israel. And if you read early on in the book of Acts, there's a point where when Stephen is martyred, it says that Saul was standing there guarding all the cloaks because he was a young guy. And he was, uh, he was there giving assent or acknowledging or, or, or affirming the martyrdom of, of Stephen. But then years later, God has grabbed hold of Paul's, Saul turned Paul's life. And Saul, it says, comes in, in chapter 21, he comes to Jerusalem. And as he was coming to Jerusalem, prophets kept telling him, don't go to Jerusalem, don't go to Jerusalem. You're going to meet horrible things there. They're going to arrest you. They're going to torment you. Don't go to Jerusalem. And Paul literally at one point says, don't break my heart anymore. I understand what you're saying, but God has already told me I have to go. Well, he gets there, and it says in, in chapter 21 that, God, that Paul goes and visits with James, who is the leader of the Christian church there in Jerusalem. And Paul just brings himself to him and says, I'm here to submit to your authority. I want you to know that I'm a minister of the gospel and I love the Lord Jesus and I've been working among the Gentiles. And James says, we understand. We've already given blessing to that ministry. He said, but I need you to know something. There are people in this community of Jerusalem who have got it out for you, Paul. They think that you have forsaken Judaism. They think that you no longer follow Judaism. And I want you, I'm, I'm, I'm encouraging you to go make a public testimony at the temple of your allegiance still to the tenets of the Jewish faith. And so literally, he says that there's some young men who have been doing a Nazarite vow. And what that means is that they weren't growing, they weren't cutting their hair, they weren't cutting their beards until a period of time would come. And when they, when they were ready to finish their vow, they would go to the temple and they would pay their offering and then they would cut their beard and their hair. Well, James said to Paul, I want you to go to the temple with these guys and I want you, out of your own funds, to pay their fees to the temple, their, their offerings to the temple. This will be an outward expression to our community that you are still one of us and that you have not forsaken 
what we believe in as far as the Jewish faith. And so Paul does that. He goes and he goes with these guys to the temple and they present themselves and he says, seven days from now we will come and we will um, come and make the, uh, finish the vow and pay the fees and then uh, they'll cut their hair and this is all in accordance with the, with the Bible, I mean with the Old Testament, the, the, the Mosaic law tells us to do. And so that's what happens. <clears throat> well, then it comes time for them to come when the seven days were just about com- completed. And it says there were some Jews from Asia, people where Paul was doing his ministry among the Gentiles, came to Jerusalem, saw Paul in the temple courts, and began screaming, He's a blasphemer! He, he goes against everything we believe in! He's... And the end result is this huge riot happens. The Roman soldiers come, the, uh, the folks grab Paul, and the end result is Paul gets bound and is about to be beaten with a cord of uh, a cat of nine tails. And Paul turns to his guard and he says, uh, is it legal for you guys to do this to a Roman citizen? And the guy who's about to whip him goes, what? You're a Roman citizen? Uh, hold on. And he goes and talks to his superior and the superior comes up and says, what do I hear of your Roman citizen? He said, I paid a good sum of money for my citizenship. And Paul looks at him and he says, I was born a citizen. Oh, crud. Uh, yeah, sorry. And they release him. They don't release him, but they take him out of his bonds. And the end result is they don't know what to do with this guy. Because if they put him out in the streets again, another riot's going to happen. And so what they do is they bring him before the, 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 uh, the leader, the, the governor. And the end result is Paul goes into prison for years now. For years. And then ultimately, he has to, he goes to, presents himself to the emperor of the Roman Empire, Nero. That's what happens in these last six or seven chapters of the book of Acts. And some of the cool things about this story, if you take the time to read it, there's incredible opposition. There's this point where 40 Jewish people tell, go to the Sanhedrin you say, and say, get them to release him to come to you and we will ambush him and kill him. And we've taken a vow, we're not going to eat or drink a thing until we do it. And so the leaders of the Jewish uh, people come to the governor and they say, let him come to us and we'll hold a trial. Well, a nephew of Paul hears about this plot. He goes to the governor and he says, you need to know about this. And the governor says, don't tell anybody you told me this. And so by night, they send Paul away up to a place called Caesarea. And he goes and he stays up there with uh, Festus. And then Festus hears him and says, I don't know know what to do with this guy. And so he keeps him in prison just to honor the Jews. And then Festus is replaced by Felix. And then, um, then Felix then invites, and I may have it backwards, No, Felix. And then Felix invites King Agrippa, and King Agrippa comes and hears Paul, and then ultimately Paul gets sent to to Rome. Every single time, every single time that Paul gets brought before the magistrates, gets brought before the soldiers, gets brought before the king, gets brought before the governor, every single time, he basically says the same story over and over and over and over again. He has a testimony, if you will. It's declared in the Bible as his defense against his accusers. But Paul has a testimony about 
how he came to faith in Jesus, how he used to be a tormentor of the way, but now he understands that Jesus is the only true way, and that he is indeed the answer to, uh, to the question of who is the Messiah, and he is promoting that. And he said, and I've never done anything to violate my Jewishness, except that they, except they don't like the fact that I acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah. And the end result is, every single one of the people he talks to says, you know what? He isn't anything wrong to be incarcerated, but if he hadn't said, I demand to see Caesar, we could have let him go. But you see, God had all of this in plan. If you go back early into this story, in 22, I think it is, the last part of chapter 22, Jesus appears to Paul and says, do not be afraid. I have a plan, I have a purpose in all that's about to happen, and you will be speaking before leaders of governors, Ultimately, you're even going to go to Rome. So Paul knew that this was God's plan. Paul walked in that confidence. There's a point where they're on the ship. The ship's about to be, break up and they're, they're, they're all running around screaming, we're going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die. And Paul literally says, God has appeared to me and given me every confidence and every understanding that all of us will survive. But we must all stay with the ship. And they do. And the end result is they end up on Malta, and then ultimately they end up in Rome. This is a story about this huge, powerful, glorious icon in our church, in, our, in Christian history, who he is so glorious and wonderful and powerful and great, and oh my word, we could never attain to that. Now let's move to Ezekiel. And if you look at Ezekiel, he's right after Isaiah, if you remember that one, we kind of talked about him a little bit. And then Jeremiah. And then Lamentations, and then Ezekiel. And we're going to be right there in Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel was a priest. Again, he was part of the hierarchy, if you will, of the Jewish culture. He was a believer in God. He was a servant. He, he was working in that vocation that God had put on him. And then if you look at verse, I mean, at chapter 2, God calls out to Ezekiel. And it says, Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 1. And he said to me, he is the one who's sitting on the throne, that Ezekiel is having a vision about. Son of man, excuse me, son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak to you. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me, and he said to me, Son of man... I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have turned guest, transgressed against, against me to this very day. But then if you go down farther in verse 6, it says, And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words. Though briars and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions... Be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. And you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. And then it says in verse, um, verse 8, 9, and, uh, and 10 that God gave him a scroll that there was a book written on it. And he told him to eat it. Now again, this is a vision. 
And what this symbolizes is that God was imparting to him not only a calling, but he was giving him empowerment, the, the knowledge to know what to say, the words that needed to be said. <coughs> Excuse me. And then in verse 10 and 11 of chapter 3, we read, Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, all my words that I shall speak to you, receive in your heart and hear with your ears. And go to the exiles, to your people, and speak to them, and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, whether they hear or refuse to hear. And then finally, in chapter 3, verse 15, he says, And I came to the exiles. He's walking in his calling. I came to the exiles at Tel Aviv, who were dwelling by the Kebar Canal, and I sat where they were dwelling, and I sat there, overwhelmed among them. For seven days. Now, let's stop for a second before we go on to the next, to the crux of what, what this is all about. Um, here we have a man who is a believer in God. He has a vocation that he's working in. And as part of his normal daily process, all of a sudden God interacts with him in a powerful way. If you look at the story of, of Paul... It's kind of the same thing. Paul was what he thought was doing God's work. When he was going out to, to traumatize and to, to harass and to arrest and to, to jail and even sometimes kill these followers of the way, he had the full blessings of the Sanhedrin and the high priest. He had, if you look in chapter 9 of the book of Acts, he had a letter from the, from the Sanhedrin authorizing him to do it. So he thought he was working God's work. But then something happened in chapter 9 of the book of Acts where God intersected and it said, Jesus appeared to him and said, Saul, why are you doing this? What? Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus. And you're doing the wrong thing. And it ends up his whole life gets turned around. Same thing happens here in Ezekiel. God gives Ezekiel this powerful vision of himself. He calls him out and he says, I have a job for you. You have to speak my words to my people, whether they want to hear it or not. Same thing with Paul. If you look at Paul's life, from his whole life of ministry, every place he went, if you read through the entire book of Acts, every single place that Paul went, the very first thing he did was he sought out the Jewish people that were in that community. And then, after he presented the gospel to them and they rejected it, he then went to the, Jew, to the Gentile people and began presenting the gospel. Sometimes he was well received, sometimes he wasn't. If you read through Philippians, you'll read all about the times that he wasn't received well. He was stoned and left for dead. He was lowered in a basket out of a city because they were trying to harm him and kill him. He had so much horror in his life, so many riots took place after he finished his public speaking, that Paul had this really raucous ministry. It was horrible. But he was doing what God told him to do. Go back to Isaiah. Same exact thing. I am giving you a message. There are going to be people who don't want to hear it, and that doesn't make any difference. You tell them anyway. Look at verse 16 through 21 of chapter 3 of Ezekiel. 16 through 21. 
At the end of seven days, okay, remember he, he's answered the call of God, he's gone to the people, he's gone and joined them, he sat down by the river where the people were, and he is commiserating with them, basically. He's joined the community. And at the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked man in his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. And it goes on all the way through to the end of the chapter, talking about this calling, that specific calling, that God has given Ezekiel as the watchman. Now, it's not part of our culture, so we don't fully understand what a watchman is. But back in that day, as a protection, the people would live within the wall at night. They might go out about, outside of the city to do their farming and agricultural work outside the city. But at night, everyone would come inside the walls of the city for protection. You can go back to medieval times. It's the same way in England and, and, and all throughout Europe. They would have a, a place of safety where they were kept. And there would be guards up on the walls watching for enemies that might come to cause harm or to steal. And so in that sense... God has placed Ezekiel on the wall watching to declare to the people whenever there's danger. And then God gives specific messages to Ezekiel to say to the people whether they want to hear it or not. So it's an incredible role and a vital role that God has given to Ezekiel. I'm calling you to give the words that I give you to these people so that they can have life. And if they don't, and then it goes on and says, and if they don't listen to you, that's on them. But if you don't tell them, they're still going to die, but I'm going to hold their blood on your account. And that to me, when I was a young Christian and read these words for the very first time, that scared the living daylights out of me. I don't want to be, I don't want to be an evangelist. I don't want to try and witness to people because, oh my goodness, if I don't do it right, I'm going to die. Jesus is going to hold their blood against me. Literally, that's everything that I read and heard. That's how I, I was scared to death of the idea of having to speak for God and saying it wrong. There is a principle here that God is trying to get across to Ezekiel. And it's not, I'm looking for ways to trip, so that I'm watching to see you trip up so that I can zap you. That's not what God is saying here. What God is saying here is, I need a partner. I need someone who I can trust. Someone that when I give you a word, I know you're going to speak it. I know you're faithful. I know you're going to do what I ask you to do. I'm looking for a partner to join me in bringing the word that needs to be brought to these people that may or may not want to hear it. It's exactly the same thing with Paul. Now, the other thing that I want to point out is this. Both of these people were not yokels that were working a farm, plowing and sharpening implements and doing that kind of stuff. And on all of a sudden God says, Pull, I'm pulling you out of this and now you're going to be my spokesman. Both of these were people who were well versed in the Bible. 
They knew the Mosaic law. They knew the requirements. They were faithful to follow all of the rules of the, of the law. So they were well understood, well understood the scriptures. And God used them then to proclaim. And what I wanted to bring that out, why I wanted to bring that out for us, is because I still to this day am coming across people who have gone to church for 20 and 30 years who literally say to me, I hope this year I'm going to read through the Bible for the first time. What? You've come to church and named Christ for 20 years? And you've never given him the courtesy to ask him what his word is in total? Well, how in the world can he use you if you've never read the Bible? For heaven's sakes, people. I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to whoever those people are. But think about it. I've never been asked of God to do anything really cool for God. Well, maybe it's because you ain't ready. You know, Paul did say in Corinthians, you know, I'd like to feed you steak, but (laughs) you're not ready for it. I'm stuck still giving you a bottle. Maybe a little pablum, but you couldn't even handle a steak at this point, even though you should be able to. I mean, he says it right there. You should be able to. And so I'm being biblical when I say to you, my brothers and sisters, if you're not able to handle steak, it's not God's fault. But as I said, God's looking for partners in this. And the end result for us as a congregation is, if we don't partner with God, he will find someone else who will. His purposes, his plans are going to continue. We won't be benefiting from his plan. If we refuse to do what he's asking us to do, he will find someone who's willing. But what I'm saying to you this morning is this. If you're not ready, become intentional and start being ready. If you are ready, be watching for the call. Because if you've already prepared, the call is going to come. It may not be dramatic. It may not be a flash of light. It may not be a throne that comes out of the sky with floating angels and wheels. But there will be a definitive, easily distinguished time when God specifically says, You! I have a job for you because I know I can trust you. And this is what I need you to do. And then once you accept that vocation and begin walking in it, Then you'll begin getting assignments. And I could go, again, we don't have time this morning to go all the way through all of the Pauline stories and all of the Ezekiel stories. But you, it's amazing what God did. (laughs) You you need to read Ezekiel. (laughs) I mean, there's some funny stuff in there. Um, If you've never read it, you need to read it. It's just, it's funny. There's times when he's literally playing war with little figurines and making a siege ramp up against the wall, and it's just ridiculous. But there's purposes. There's a prophetic purpose for it, but it's just funny if you read it just from, just to just read it. Paul, the same thing. Paul is asked to do so many crazy things at times. But the the point of the fact is, is that God 
had a purpose and a plan, and he had somebody who was willing to partner with him, who was willing to do whatever was asked and whatever was necessary, and the end result was glorious and phenomenal and powerful. And I will share with you one other thing, and this is something that's kind of uh, for me, but it was eye-opening yesterday. Um, it has nothing to do with this, this topic, but it, it does in the sense of preparation. Okay? Yesterday, I had to drive over to my daughter's apartment because she's just this week moved into her very first, very own apartment with her son. And I had agreed to help go hang some curtain rods and closet bars and that kind of stuff. So I, I went over on Friday night to do some work, but it got late and we didn't want to keep pounding on the walls with the hammer and stuff at that late at night. So I said I'd come back in the morning. So I came home. Went to bed, got up in the morning, got in the truck, and was driving out. And I literally drove as far as Breeze Road, and I pulled off. Because it was obvious I had a flat tire. I was like, oh, I don't need this. I have a full day. I don't need this. Okay. I know how to change a flat tire. It's not that big of a deal. So I got all the tools out. I had the jack with me. Everything was good. I, I, got, the, you know, I got the jack under the thing. I got it jacked up. I broke the, the lug nuts. I got the lug nuts off. I pulled the tire off. I rolled the spare tire in place. And then I had to look to line up the, lug, the, the lugs with the holes in the wheel and at the same time lift to get it in place. And I realized I didn't have the physical strength to be able to do that. And I was like, God, I'm only 58 years old. I can't even change a tire. Because I have not allowed my body to be trained and continually trained. I mean, when I was 25, it wouldn't have been a question. When I was 35, it wouldn't have been a question. When I was 45, it wouldn't have been a question. But I have allowed myself through atrophy, to atrophy through lack of use. And I was like, God, this is really scary to me. And I prayed. I said, hey, there's nobody here. And i got to get this done. Please give me the strength to do it. And I just pushed and forced myself. And I got the tire on. But it was eye-opening to me. I've never had any upper body strength. I mean, never. I, I was never muscular. I was never... But I could at least lift a tire to change a tire, for heaven's sakes. And the principle that I, I got from that, that the Lord wants me to say to you, is this. Years ago, I had the physical strength. But because of carelessness, I lost the ability. And I'm now going to have to go back and rebuild that strength in order to be able to, if we are driving 350 miles to Wasilla, lift my tire up off the ground and get it put back on because I can't expect my wife to do that. Or if I'm by myself, I, ha I can't stay out in the middle of nowhere in the middle of you know, 20 degrees below zero. I've got to get it done. Or I will die. And so that same principle goes into my spiritual walk. I may have one day years ago been able to quote this backwards, forwards, inside and out because I used it daily. But I have found, and this is true, now that I don't have to use a concordance to look up a verse now that I can do a word search in 20 seconds by just clicking on a, on a link on my iPad, I have lost the memorized location of many verses of the Bible. And that is why you've seen over the last six to eight months, 
that Pastor Bob now uses a paper Bible when he preaches, when he studies, when he's reading his devotions. The iPad is a tool to help me, but this is now what I use when I'm trying to interact with God's Word. Why? Because I have lost ability because of atrophy of that skill because I was allowing technology to do for me instead of doing it for myself. And I'm not telling you anything other than this is my story. But heaven help me if God gives me an opportunity to speak truth to somebody and I can't remember where the verse is that God is telling me to, to show to them. You hear what I'm saying, folks? I'm not doubting who you are. But I am telling you, there's a calling on your life to be the sheep, to procreate, so that God's kingdom in two rivers can advance. And if you are not able to, because of carelessness, only you can fix that. God's looking for partners. I think God has found partners in most of you, if not all of you. But your end has to be held up. Your part in this has to be held up. Only you can know where you're at. As I said a few minutes ago, if you've never read cover to cover this Bible, that's your first step. The next step, study it. Know it backwards, forwards, inside and out. If I said to you who is Gomer, you should be able to tell me who Gomer is. And if necessary, maybe we'll spend some months just doing Bible baseball for our church services. Where we divide up into teams like we used to do for God Squad. And have you guys go the bases as you get asked Bible trivia questions about the scriptures. So that we can know this backwards, forwards, inside and out. My heart is I want to empower you. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 12 says it's my job to equip the saints for the work of the kingdom. So we're going to do whatever it takes to make sure that you have what you need. So that when God calls, you can answer that call and be successful. But my point is at this point right now is I need you to do an assessment for yourself. Not right here, not right now. But over the next week or two, who are you in Christ? Are you a baby who's still living on milk and pablum? Are you a vibrant, vital middle-ager who's got all of your vitality and all of your strength and you've got all of the tools and equipment necessary? Or are you 97 years old in your walk with Christ And you've allowed some of the muscles to atrophy. And in order to be able to still be used of God, you've got to start reworking and re-honing those skills. Only you know. It's not my place to tell you where you are. And let the Holy Spirit guide you in this. The goal being that all of us would be out there working for the kingdom, doing what we're asked to do, using our skills, our talents, our abilities, And knowing that we're bringing honor and glory to him. Let's pray.